Almighty God, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel today, and woe is me if I preach anything other than the gospel. And so, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. Not only is Paul's letter to the Galatians at the very heart of the Protestant Reformation's recovery of the doctrine of justification by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, according to Scripture alone. Not only is it key to the Reformation, by many accounts, the epistle to the Galatians was the catalyst for the Great Awakening in the 18th century, a a movement of spiritual revival when hundreds of thousands of men and women on both sides of the Atlantic heard the gospel proclaimed clearly for the first time and through the preaching of the gospel met the Lord Jesus Christ and were converted to a living faith in him. For example... William Holland, a Methodist preacher who had recently returned from the American colonies to London, he records in his diary that on May 17, 1738, he was providentially directed to Martin Luther's lectures on the epistle to the Galatians. Holland writes in his diary, I carried the book round to Mr. Charles Wesley, who was sick at Mr. Bray's house. I carried it as though it were very precious treasure that I had found. And we three sat down together. Mr. Charles Wesley read aloud Martin Luther's preface to the Galatians, wherein Luther endeavors to explain the main argument and intention of St. Paul's epistle as the necessary distinction between the law and the gospel and the more excellent righteousness of faith. That is, God, through Christ, apart from any work of our own, credits righteousness freely to our account. Mr. Wesley read these words of Luther. What? Have we then nothing? No works of the law to perform? No good deeds to do? No commands to obey? Do we have nothing to do? Don't we have to work at all to obtain this righteousness? My answer, Wesley read, my answer is simple. Absolutely not. For this is, the, this is perfect righteousness, to do nothing, to hear nothing, to know nothing about the law or works, but only accept him whom God has made for us all our wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. At the words, what have we then, nothing to do, know nothing, but only accept him? At those words, there came such a power over me as I cannot well describe. My great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was so filled with peace and love that I burst into tears. I almost thought I saw our Savior before me. My companions, perceiving me so affected, fell on their knees and prayed. Afterwards, when I went out into the street, I could scarcely feel the ground I trod upon. Luther's short distillation of Paul's letter to the Galatians and its, its message of the gospel of grace so overwhelmed and astounded William Holland, who was a preacher, mind you. It so overwhelmed him that afterwards, every day, he took the preface to Galatians to the houses of friends and, and knocking on their doors, he would say, here, I have a promise so wonderful, I'm desperate to share it with you. Can I tell you? 
I've heard news so good, I can't wait for you to hear it too. He was a preacher. He was astonished by Paul's message in Galatians. In other words, in other words, it's possible to be a preacher of the gospel and be preaching something other than the gospel. Dorothy Sayers, the 20th century British novelist, was also a passionate and articulate Christian. In a justly famous op-ed for the London Sunday Times, she laments how the Christian message is the most exciting drama that ever staggered the imagination of man. Yet somehow, preachers like me have pulled off the near-impossible feat of making the gospel boring. We make it sentimental. God loves you just the way you are. We make it moralistic, do unto others as you would have done to you. We make it legalistic, as a, as a faithful follower of Christ, you must fill in the blank. Or a, a faithful Christian ought not to fill in the blank. None of which requires Christ and his shed blood in order to be a coherent message. We are constantly assured, Dorothy Sayers wrote in that op-ed, that the churches are empty because preachers insist too much upon doctrine. Dull dogma, as people call it. The fact is the opposite. It is the neglect of our dogma that makes for dullness. The doctrine is the drama. In other words, it's possible to be a community of the gospel Celebrating baptisms and consecrating bread and wine, singing hymns and and studying the Bible, preaching and praying and and serving the poor. It's it's possible to be a community of the gospel that has has lost the gospel. According to Sayers, a a lack of eventfulness and excitement and and expectation and surprise and, 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 and playfulness. And astonishment, those are the telltale signs. It's possible to be a community created by the gospel that is no longer centered in the gospel. In his own journal, Charles Wesley also writes of the experience he shared with William Holland reading the preface to Galatians. He writes, I marveled that we were so soon and entirely removed from him that called us into the grace of Christ and had fallen into another gospel altogether. Who would believe from our preaching and teaching or from the joy and freedom of our lives that our church had been founded upon this important article of justification by grace alone through faith alone? I am astonished and reproached by how this strikes me as a new doctrine. From this time forward, I endeavored to ground as many of our friends as came in this fundamental truth, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. I've heard news so good, I can't wait for you to hear it too. One of those friends with whom Charles Wesley felt compelled to share the news of justification by grace alone was his brother, John who, hearing the same distillation of the gospel a few days later, said that he felt his heart strangely warmed. John Wesley had been an ordained priest in the Church of England for ten years before it lit him on fire that all we need to do for our enoughness before God is to accept him whom God has made for all our righteousness. 
Through John and Charles Wesley, the Holy Spirit unleashed a movement that converted thousands upon thousands, many of which, mind you, identified already as Christians. They were baptized. They were praying, good deed-doing members of churches. And yet they responded to the gospel as though they were hearing it for the first time. Because they were hearing it for the very first time. In other words, it's possible to be a believer and be believing something other than the gospel. Having a church is no guarantee of, of hearing the gospel. Here's the nub. Nobody ever drifts towards the gospel. If you could remember those six words, then you are on your way to grasping Paul's argument in Galatians. Nobody ever drifts towards the gospel. Our inertia will always pull us away from the gospel because the gospel does not come naturally to any of us. The gospel does not come naturally to any of us because the gospel comes as Jesus Christ and him crucified, which the Bible says is, is foolishness to secular people and a stumbling block even, uh, perhaps especially, it's a stumbling block to religious people like us. Notice, for example, what's absent from Paul's short summary of the gospel in our text today. The Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to set us free from the present evil age. What's missing? You and me as active agents. There is no mention of us contributing anything to our salvation but our sin. The gospel is God's grace in Jesus Christ, not in partnership with us, but in spite of us. Nor is there any mention of of merit. The hour in who gave himself for our sins, the hour is all-inclusive. God's grace omits no sinner. Christ is the incongruous gift that God gives without any regard to the worth of its recipients. And for those of us who like to think we're worthy, or maybe with a little bit of help from God, we, we could make ourselves worthy, yeah, the gospel's insulting. And for those of us who know those people that we deem unworthy, and there are people, the gospel's offensive. In a meritocracy like ours, the gospel will always appear countercultural. In a just society like ours, the gospel will always risk sounding reckless and cheap. In a transactional world like ours, the gospel will always be counterintuitive. In Jesus Christ, you have a quid without any demand for a quo. Your Savior is not on the other end of the line like Donald Trump saying, I need you to do us a favor, though. As Robert Capon writes, the gospel is not that God is like an almighty mother-in-law who gifts you a priceless crystal vase, but then every time she visits you, she inspects it for nicks and scratches. But the gravitational pull upon us from our transactional world will always be away from this gospel that gives us a quid without any demand for a quo. Therefore, 
Therefore, where the gospel is assumed, it's safe to assume the gospel has been lost. Even worse, we'll see that next week, even worse, where the gospel has been added to, the gospel has been annulled. When you make the gospel a stepping stone to something else, you're walking away from the gospel. And this is exactly what happened in Galatia. Dispatched by the risen Christ, the Apostle Paul had gone, to, had gone to Galatia where he proclaimed the gospel. And through the power of the gospel, the grace of God set people's hearts on fire. I have a promise so wonderful, I'm desperate to share it with you. But as soon as Paul moved on to plant other churches, false teachers followed behind Paul. And claiming apostolic authority for themselves, they taught a different gospel. No, the false teachers preached. No, contrary to what Paul told you, faith in the gospel alone is not sufficient to justify and save a sinner. You you can't just enjoy your forgiveness. One day, God's going to judge you based on what you've done with your forgiveness. Sure, God's done his part, wiping your slate clean in Jesus Christ, but now you've got to do your part. Stomping out the sin in your life, standing up to sin in the world, and faithfully following his commands. There's got to be a quo for your quid. The false teachers, Paul calls them Judaizers, they were legalists, moralists. You could think of them as fundamentalists and social justice warriors rolled into one. They, they muddled the message of the gospel with the law into a, a kind of gospel, which Paul writes in verse 7 is no gospel at all. No gospel at all, because there is no middle ground between Christ has done everything for you and this is what you must do. There is no reconciliation at all between those two messages. In the grace of God in Jesus Christ and nothing else, you have everything. In Christ and nothing else, you have everything. Therefore, Christ plus anything at all is nothing. The gospel damns any and all additives to it, Martin Luther taught. This is why the the tone of Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia is so unlike his other epistles. Notice the very first word in the epistle after Paul gives his name and title. The very first word is, no. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man. Paul's first word for the Galatians is a no. And no sooner than verse 9, Paul's calling for God to damn them. Paul's letter to the Galatians is proof that that Paul would own everyone on Twitter if he were preaching in the 21st century. I mean, this epistle is angry and argumentative. It's polemical from beginning to end. He draws sharp contrasts and, and black and white antitheses. Paul is so alarmed by what he's heard of the other churches in Galatia that he cuts the traditional thanksgiving from his salutation entirely. I mean, think about that. In Corinth, church members were sleeping with their mothers-in-law, showing up drunk to the Lord's table and treating the poor like second-class citizens. Corinth is like the Jersey Shore of the New Testament. 
And yet in his letters to Corinth, Paul calls the Corinthians saints and dear ones. And he thanks God for them. But for the Galatians? For the Galatians, Paul just writes to the churches of Galatia. And it goes downhill from there. Incidentally, this is another indication that Christianity is not a religion of morality. It's the announcement of a message. If Christianity were about morality, then the Corinthians would be the last Christians that Paul would call saints. If Christianity were about ethics, Paul would not launch his most heated verbal assault on the Galatians, whose only offense is muddling the message of the gospel. Rather than simply trusting the gospel, the Galatians were attempting to be good. And they're the ones, not the Corinthians, they're the ones on whom Paul unleashes his rhetorical fire. Take note, too. Paul addresses this letter to more than one church, which makes it different than his other letters. He's writing to more than one church. He's writing to to all the churches that he and Barnabas had planted in the region of Galatia. He doesn't single any of them out for praise, nor does he isolate the, the ones who deserve critique. He lumps them all together. In other words... Paul takes it for granted that everyone finds the false teacher's quid pro quo gospel, their grace plus something else message. He takes it for granted that everyone finds that message attractive. He takes it for granted that they all find this false gospel alluring. And that should be a warning to us. I remember about five years ago, We were doing a sermon series on Galatians. And reading this letter once again prompted me to ask a friend in my congregation for a favor. I asked him to to sit through an entire worship service one Sunday and do nothing but count the words that we used in worship. I asked him to count all the gospel language we used in worship versus all the language of the law. From the announcements, to the sermon, to the extemporaneous prayers, to the songs, to the benediction, to the chit-chat in between parts of the service. I asked him to pay attention and count how many words of comfort and promise we used compared to how many words of obligation and duty, oughts and shoulds, done for you versus this you must do for God. When he came up to me in the narthex after worship that Sunday, Mark pulled a a moleskin notebook from his breast pocket and said, I might have missed a few, but it came out to about 85% to 15%. That's better than three quarters, I replied. That's that's much better than I feared. That's pretty good. No, he said. It's the other way around. It was about 85% oughts and shoulds. I grabbed his notebook and I looked at his list of words written down. Really? You've got to be kidding me, I said. Only 15% of our our speech was was gospel? I I, I don't even know what to do about 85% or, or, or even know where to begin. Beg God for forgiveness, Mark said. And I looked up from his notebook to to see that he wasn't joking. Beg for forgiveness. 
Nobody ever drifts towards the gospel. This is why, in his salutation, the Apostle Paul does not refer to God as the maker of heaven and earth, or the Lord of Israel, or the father of Abraham. But immediately, Paul refers to God as the father of Christ Jesus, who raised him from the dead. From the very first sentence of his letter, Paul points the Galatians to the resurrection Because, as Paul writes, Christ was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised up for our justification. As Luther writes in his commentary, Paul has nothing in his heart but the righteousness of Christ because the empty tomb is the passageway whereby Christ's very own righteousness becomes ours, free of charge, through faith. You see, from the get-go, with nearly every word and sentence of his letter, Paul is calling them back to the promise so wonderful, he's still desperate to share it with them. And so am I, desperate to share it with you. Because not only must we never assume the gospel as a church, we must always assume, we must always assume there is someone present in the church who desperately needs to hear the gospel. And their need to hear the gospel will always trump whatever else, politics, advice, life lessons, inspirational stories, it will always trump whatever else we might like to talk about on any given Sunday. We can never assume the gospel or add to it because we must always assume there is someone here hanging on for dear life who needs to hear the gospel and nothing but the gospel. The doctrine is the drama. For instance, and this is just one example. I could give you story after story after story, and and Pat could, and, and Peter could. For instance... Last Sunday afternoon, I received an email from a man who had visited us in worship that morning and stayed for the Memorial Day service as well. Let's call him Greg. He wrote, Dear Pastor, it was great to be back in church today. It's been too long. I stayed behind for the Memorial Day recognition and listened to your bonus sermon. At least from my experience, I think you were spot on. I have been a good Christian my entire life. I've gone to service and given to the church and served the needy and kept most of the commandments. But in my work, on behalf of the nation, I cannot avoid the reality that I have personally and directly contributed to the death of hundreds, if not thousands, of people. People that my government, rightly or wrongly, viewed as evil. Even if they were evil, they're all still individuals for whom Christ died. I'm retired from the military now, but I still go to work every day, and I labor to make our military more efficient and lethal in destroying other people. Thou shalt not kill? I pray constantly, Pastor, that when I meet my Maker, he doesn't turn his face from me for what I have done and what I continue to do. I was willing to sacrifice my life for my nation's will, and I suppose I still am willing. Nevertheless, I now live with the burden of guilt. Guilt over what I did, 
and guilt over what I still do. Nobody ever drifts towards the gospel. We can never assume the gospel because we must always assume there's someone here who needs to hear it. Of course, the the truth is we, we all need to hear it. Because the gospel is seemingly too good to be true. Therefore, we, we never have an easy time believing it. And we never advance beyond needing to hear it Sunday after Sunday. Greg certainly needs to hear it. So Greg, if you're here today, and I don't know if you are, I have a promise so wonderful, I am desperate to share it with you. A promise... I, too, depend upon like a a drowning, desperate man clinging to a life preserver. The promise is that in Christ and Him crucified, you have been delivered into a new age, not of works, but of grace. On account of Christ, everything that belongs to you, your sin, is His now. In Christ, everything that belongs to Him, His righteousness, His perfect, permanent record, His faithfulness, all of it, is yours now. Henceforth, Greg, for Christ's sake, God will never deal with you on the basis of your goodness or your badness, but only on the basis of Christ's finished work. There are no pearly gates, and St. Peter's off doing something else, because the only record God will ever examine is Jesus Christ's. God will never deal with you on the basis of your goodness or your badness, but only on the basis of what Christ has done for you. And Greg, I've been a preacher of this promise long enough to know that eventually you're going to wonder, but but isn't there something I have to do? The answer, Greg, is simple. And we have to hold fast to it because the gospel itself is at stake. The answer is no, absolutely not, for this is perfect righteousness, to do nothing, to hear nothing, to know nothing about the law or works, but only accept him whom God has made for us, for all our wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. I offer to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We reflect on those words and invite you to remain seated. Let's sing the refrain.